Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Thank you for tuning in today. If you're listening on podcast, uh, maybe you'll be catching the show later. Welcome. If you just tuned in and it's now five hours after showtime. But if you are live and in person with me right now, welcome. Nice to have you here. I'm excited about the show. Guy Talk is going to be starting in just a minute. I got a full hour after that as well. So that's what we're going to do today. You know Guy Talk. Uh, let me know whatever the questions you might have for the panel. Again, 877-933-2484. cast of uh, familiar characters are here (laughs) forming the panel. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Pastors Justin Jepson, and Dr. Peter Kapsner. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, Bill. Bill. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, nice to have everyone on board. Uh, 007, nice to have you on time. You know, I'm always full of surprises. So. <laughs> you, you you get to come and go as you please. All right, Thank let's you. let's start off with a passage uh, about there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. What is your understanding of that passage, and what is a hint? Hmm. I, I don't know much hmm. about the necessarily the hint part of it for sure, Bill, but uh, it was looking at that passage a little bit recently. And when, when these things are happening like this in the Bible, the word sexual immorality is the, is the Greek word porneia, and it shows up mm-hmm. in a lot of different times in the New Testament. And when it shows up, it's, it's the question of what kind is being talked about right there. So when, when Jesus talks about the idea of um, sexual immorality in Matthew 19, there's a specific kind that is being talked about. It's not necessarily in general. And sort of the best shot of that Ephesians passage is that there really was a, a, a wild west of sexuality going on, and it was specifically a wild west of sexuality related to sexual union outside of the marriage covenant in some of its different forms. So it, it, it's, it wasn't a blanket statement, and, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about a blanket statement related to sexual immorality. It just means that that specific passage within the Ephesus city, like you, you might imagine in any city in the world today, right? You You could read what's going on within the city, and then you're addressing something specifically in that city. And and Paul is always doing that in his letters. He's hardly ever trying to just make big blanket theological statements that are meant for 21st century readers. He's addressing things in that city. And what was going on mm-hmm. with his, uh, Ephesus is just a horrible amount of covenant breaking within the marriage relationship. And, uh, and, and there was a lot of sexual union happening in some pretty horrific ways. So he was telling the believers at that time, don't act like all of the the rest of Ephesus around you. Live in a different way. Live in a one-flesh relationship, just husband and wife, and don't act as if they're acting in the way around you. In fact, don't even let there be a hint of that idea among you, because you're meant to live in a different kind of way. So however else we might use that verse, that specific thing was what was going on in Ephesus. <laughs> That's a really good answer. Who wants to follow that? Yeah, I, I uh, <laughs> not, 
not to, yeah. <laughs> can't add much to dr kapsner right but yeah, right. I, I, say, I think, I <laughs> hey think like I said, we're just glad you're on time i wish i was you justin when i could just kind of come <laughs> and go with the intrigue yeah uh, i just i love that idea he's got a trench coat on right now i just know it. i know right just, and he pulls it off <laughs> i might just i might just disappear after this answer depending on how it goes okay but i uh you're free no, to do that I, I think i think part of um i think part of that too that just to, just to stem off what peter had already shared was you know the the city, ancient, you know, city of Ephesus was home to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which is the Greek temple to uh, the god Artemis, which is the fertility god. And I think for the really the revolution that happened when when Paul brought the gospel to the city of Ephesus, um, there was so much syncretism that was involved um, among the Gentiles in terms of them kind of mixing or just sprinkling in a little bit of pagan religion into the gospel and a lot of mixture. And I think part of what Paul is getting at here, let there not even be a hint, um, is that even just a little bit can can spoil the whole thing. I think it's the same idea that Jesus talks about, just a little bit of leaven, leavens the whole lump, and to be aware of the leaven of the teaching of the scribes of, uh, and the Pharisees. Um, I think he's really talking about there needs to be a wholehearted devotion and a purity now to Jesus in both our public and private life. And certainly Ephesians 5, that goes on, you know, goes on to talk about marriage fidelity and 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 how the gospel completely reorients um every aspect of our life from the inside out and so um i think when you look at that kind of cultural historical backdrop i think that it also just um gives a a, a greater weight and a force to uh the original intended meeting that that the paul meant as he was writing to the ephesian believers there are three great powers in life that we have to come to grips with money power sex. Those are the three that compete against Jesus all the time for the Mm -hmm. Christian. Constantly after us. We've seen, unfortunately, church leaders fall and many mistakes made. When Paul's saying, don't even let there be a hint, he's really saying, shift your focus. Not on the sexuality, not on the beauty of another person, not on the fun you're going to have and all that kind of stuff, but shift your eyes to Jesus. Do you really want to disappoint Jesus? Do you really want to hurt his cause after all he's done for you? And I know for me... That very thought has kept me out of trouble over the years, not because I wasn't tempted, not because, you know, it, there wasn't great opportunity. The point was, did I really want to let Jesus down or did I really want to honor his name? And when you go from thinking things about Jesus to literally wanting to honor him, it makes a change even in your sexual behavior. And I would add this, you know, I think one way we are worse than ancient Ephesus regarding immorality, porneia is in, when they wanted to sin like that, they had to go down the street, find the temple prostitute, et cetera, et cetera. All we have to do is turn on the Internet or turn on our phone or turn on TV. And uh, this afternoon I was talking with a dear friend I grew up with whose marriage just ended in a divorce. Her, she's a believer. Her husband says he's a believer. He's addicted to pornography, won't really get help. And uh, just because... The whole thing about not even a hint, I'll say it again. Uh, Men, if you've got a problem with pornography, put covenant eyes on your computer, put it on your iPhone, get an accountability partner. Because here's a man whose marriage just ended in divorce because he would not take his addiction to pornography seriously. So um, that's my encouragement for the listeners. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Rock, like that. That we, There's just a different level of opportunity. We might not have the same form of it. Well, we do clearly have the same form of it going on as Ephesus, but just that idea of living a different kind of life. And I was reading an 
person was pointing out that even in a movie like Indiana Jones and the search for the Holy Grail that featured Harrison Ford and Sean Connery and this father son relationship, there's this cringeworthy moment that is mm. meant as an attempt that we should all laugh about. And I was actually watching I this movie. This. Kids, I do too. You know, right? I was watching it recently and I just cringed when they laughed at the joke that they had both ended up unknowingly, unwittingly, they had slept with the same woman. And it was meant yeah. as sort of this humorous moment that, that we're supposed to laugh at. But the person I was reading pointed out that probably is a bit like it was in Ephesus, where there's the sense of this wink, wink, nod, nod, celebrate. Isn't this funny? Oh, isn't that just when you step back for a moment and think about what actually just happened there, let, let's maybe not have a hint of that kind of thing running among us where we wink, wink, nod, nod, laugh, laugh about something that that's that disturbing. Mm-hmm. Good point. How many marriages, how many marriages have been destroyed by pornography that we don't even know about. I mean, my friend said to me, you know, my husband and I were not intimate. And why? Well, he's getting his intimacy kind of somewhere else and the porn. And just, you know, how much America, I, I, the third highest divorce rate in the world, number one is Belarus, number two is Maldives, wherever that, those countries are, number three is the United <laughs> States. We've got a high divorce rate here. I can't help but think that we're also, you know, one of the easiest places to get pornography in the world as well. So I just, uh, everybody, take whatever steps you need to take to cut out your eye, said Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, Dobson did an interesting study because we hear about the divorce rate, 50%, even among those who go to church. What they discovered, and I, I can try to find the documentation on this, is that couples that prayed together every day, had only a 1 in 1,500 chance of getting a divorce. The problem is we try to manage this stuff on our own, and we don't manage it with one another and manage it with the Lord according to his word. And the prayer is powerful, and I really encourage every couple. I tell every couple that came to me for counseling, if you're going to get counseling from me, you got to spend you know three minutes in prayer a day. He gets 90 seconds. The wife gets 90 seconds. And then they have to pray for, not for one another, they pray for themselves before the Lord. And I've seen more marriages healed, not by my good counseling, but by people praying together. Mm. So as I read Ephesians 5, verse 3 again, it says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. And a listener just sent me that verse over, reminding me, I will read it, that said, do not partake of any of these at all, period. Yeah. Nicely done, sir, or ma'am. <laughs> Good word. All right, let me take a little break. We got a great start here to Guide Talk. Thanks for your contributions. Power Panel is here ready to take your questions, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. talk power panels in place and i just got another text from a listener that had me uh wants to correct me on something i always appreciate that because he sent the verse over in king james and i turned around and read it in niv (laughs) because my bible is niv and i just looked at the verse i didn't see the kjv but it said bill my response was based on king james version which uses the word once instead of hint 
But fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. He's saying the same thing. Even don't let there be a hint, don't let it happen even once. It sounds like my father when I was growing up. <laughs> he, he used those phrases often, and I understood what they meant. Mm-hmm. If he would say to me, I don't think it's a good idea to do that, that was the same as saying, if you do that, I will throw you out of my house. And so I learned very quickly what those words meant, and I think they're identical in meaning. The problem is it's how we carry that out with one another. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. that's good to look at the King James. All right, I've already... You know, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Justin. I would just, I would just say that if I'm to decide which of those <laughs> interpretive uh, translations is accurate... <laughs> okay, Tom, I have to stop yeah, you here for a minute. Tom, i got to yeah. stop you because you're sounding really muffled. So if you can maybe okay. move, move the phone. I will do that. There you go. Now wow. it's better. <laughs> it's a new Tom Brock. It's a new Tom. The sun, the sun still, in Florida. Still bad, Bill? Right. Now, now go is ahead. It, is it still bad? No, it's perfect now. Okay. Well, you know, um, the most literal Bible translations are the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. Yes. So if I, and, of course, some of us, like me, uh, can go to the original Greek, but... I don't go there all that much, but if you just go to, anybody can do this, you go to the NASB or the ESB, and how do they translate that word? And if it's translated once, then the King James is more accurate. If it's translated hint, then the NIV is more accurate, because those two specific Bible translations are super careful, which is why I like to use those two versions. All right. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, if we're, as long as we're kind of in this, uh, down, hopping down this bunny trail just a little bit, the, the <laughs> philosophy of translation is really interesting, you guys, isn't it? I mean, to to take things from the Hebrew of the Old Testament into the English, or the or the Greek of the New Testament into the English, is is not an exactly an exact science because, like anything else, when you go from right. one language to another, you're often dealing with concepts instead of word to word sort of translation. So you do have a philosophy of translation that this, maybe some scholars will get together and will try to go as word for word as possible, like the New American Standard, or you have the other sort of school of philosophical translation called dynamic equivalence, which would be the New International Version and some of these kinds of texts that are trying to understand the concept of the writers and translate it faithfully into whatever the native language might be. I think what's interesting about the King James Version as being the one that is the first one to move into the English is there is a school of thought that would suggest that that one was specifically God-breathed and inspired above all other translations, and, and it's part of why it gained some traction. There, there's some, you know, then you've got to dive back into theological and church history and social history and what was going on in the United Kingdom at the times and, and all of that. So it is a really, it's, it's too much down a bunny trail to hop right now, but mm-hmm. I think the point is is that it, it's really helpful to have a parallel Bible that has maybe four different translations yes. all side by side in the same passage. Not You try to lug that thing around, and, and it's 400 pounds, but it's really nice to have four translations side by side by side working together on that. That's one of my favorite Bibles that I've ever had as a parallel Bible. Me too. You know, you can go on the Internet, too, and I think it's Bible Gateway or one of those where you can put in a particular verse, and it will give you about 25 different translations, yeah. verse by verse yep. by verse. And I know in preaching and teaching, I would do a lot of that where I would first read the text in English, then I would read 10 or 12 other translations in English, whatever they may be, before I went to the Greek. 
And not everybody has the pleasure of going to the Greek or being able to do that. But the English translations, if you look at a multitude of them, you get a, a mindset that comes from a lot of different people as they've looked at the Greek and the Hebrew. I think it's very valuable. And, and uh, Peter, I agree with you. Nicely done, gentlemen. All right. This is an interesting topic. This has come up twice on the text train already today. And Tom Parrish and I were speaking about this in the green room before the show. And he was overwhelmed with sadness about Ravi Zacharias. And a a couple listeners have have already chimed in. And here is uh, my wingman, Terry. He said, I have been, uh, he's had, Ravi has had a huge impact on my faith. And so this devastating and shocking revelations that have recently come to light, what do I do with almost a dozen books and hundreds of podcasts of his teaching I have accumulated? Do they, do they now hold any value or should I get rid of them all? I'm still a bit conf- overwhelmed by the news and don't want to make any rash decisions on my present emotions, but I'm not sure they'll change even over time. You know, if you guys are listening now, you may want to get out a pen and pencil and write this down because what I'm going to say is so profound. Oh, boy. Yeah, it came to me from an older pastor on a very similar topic years ago. Are you ready? Here's what he said. He said, Tom, you know, chew the meat and spit out the bones. That is, in everything that we consume, there's going to be problems. Doesn't matter who it is, what it is, even translations can miss certain things. He's saying, take the meat out of it. Take the truth out of it. Ravi Zachariah had a lot of truth, guys, and he had a lot of wisdom, and there was a lot he said that I've seen put to play in people's lives that have changed their lives. People became Christians as a result. But the person of Ravi Zachariah had issues that he never really found an answer for or was not willing to deal with. But, you know, the Lord still mightily moved through him, and I would say if you have the material, get over the emotional shock. It may take a year or two for to do that. But the quality of what he said is still there. And I will still use uh, what he said and try to understand that in my own speaking and teaching and interacting with other people. I hope you all wrote that down. Yes, Tom. Chew the, I, well, the meat, spit yeah. the bones. <laughs> you know, the, the thing I thought of, in the early church, there was a question, what do you do if you were baptized by a priest and you discover later he was an adulterer? Yep. Was your baptism valid? And the early church decided the sacrament is valid, not dependent upon the character of the priest. Yes. And last I I was I last night I was out of town. The only church I could find to to go for Ash Wednesday was this Episcopal church near uh, near me, and so I went for the first time. Wonderful service, biblical as it could be. But if you know much about the Episcopal Church, it's extremely liberal. Well, communion time comes. I want communion on Ash Wednesday, and I'm not sure, but from what I could see, it looked like a lesbian couple, one of them went up and, and gave out Holy Communion. And I thought, do I go up? And then I thought of what I just said. The early church determined the validity of the sacrament does not depend upon the character of the priest. And so Ravi Zacharias, whatever his sinful problems were, sounded pretty rough. Uh, God can, you know, God spoke through Balaam's donkey. God speaks through Ravi Zacharias, me, everybody, you know. So I I don't, I think Tom's uh, spit out the bones and eat the meat, and the meat is still the meat, even if it comes to someone who, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, this is, I, I, yeah, Justin, go ahead. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think I, I agree with everything that's been shared, but I think um, I think we can't move too quickly past, though, yeah. the, the, perva- the pervasive problem that we see within evangelicalism that uh, I was listening to just a, a thoughtful Christian leader um, just talk about this, how n- not only does it seem that evangelicalism seems to allow continually allow like the systems that's been created to allow stuff like this to happen. Cause I mean, it's just, I mean, I too was, you know, uh, just dumbfounded, devastated, but unsurprisingly not shocked in a way. And, um, this is like, gosh, here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. And absolutely. This is another tragic example of how we don't, we don't put our faith in the messenger or in God's servant, but in, but in the message. And of course, we're all, imperfect messengers. We're all broken vessels. We're all, we're all cracked pots, so to speak. We're all jars of clay. But I think this, you know, it really is a time to take a deeper look at, is there something within evangelicalism that is actually helping create this problem? Tom, you, you mentioned earlier this idea of the how so easily we succumb to power, you know, whether that's in the form of money uh, and sex and how that was abused. And of course, all of those were at play. Uh, within the scandal that went on. And it wasn't, um, and I think, I think we have to also, you know, there's the argument too, of course, if we apply this and we're going to throw out all the Psalms because David was a murderer and adulterer. And I think while that's true, we can't just kind of flippantly say that. And we got to recognize that, you know, of maybe other women that were uh, abused and were victims of something as horrendous like this, that was masqueraded um, with a Christian veneer over it, um, this, this is also, we should deeply, deeply lament um, that this, that this is happening. And, you know, and of course this one's public, but this is probably happening in such a greater degree that we, maybe we don't even realize. And I think it, it's time to take a, a deep look, I think at the church and saying what's, what's going on at the root level beneath the surface of why this is continuing to happen um, cause this is, I think this one hit me a little harder than other ones because of how, how deep it was, how pervasive it was. And just the, the report that came out was devastating to read. So, um, did he, so while did all that's any true, yeah. did well, he have any accountability? I, yeah, well, here's, yeah. And again, the, we could go, you know, deep into this, this report, you know, came out, um, it's public and in terms of RZIM, the, 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 the institution, the organization that they hired to do this background work, and they released the full report. Um, and there was accountability uh, in place, but um, there there was a failure to, I think, to execute that. Um, but I think that it's it's I think it's not just an accountability problem. I think it's a full system problem of, of even how sometimes ministry itself is. We, we've created a business. Um, out of out of famous Christians, yeah. and um, you know, and I think that that is part of the problem here. It's you know, people uh, that are famous isn't the problem. We have that back in the you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollo. Right. But we've created a whole system around it that I think needs to be um, broken down yeah. and reestablished. And I'd love to so. continue this discussion. I think it's a good one and an important one. So we are needing to take a short break. We'll be back. Uh, send me your questions, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-93-FAITH. Be right back.
I'm back with Sky Talk. The power panel is in place, all faced in the right direction, which is good. <laughs> Pastor Tom Parrish, Tom Brock, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kapsner is the panel. Let me know what questions you have for them. 877-933-2484. Justin, I thought you brought up a really interesting point. Uh, what we have done in the evangelical community, you know, almost taking uh, pastors and Christian leaders and and sort of making them celebrities. And Tom Paris during the break said, what about the Christian artists uh, getting dove awards and all these big, big celebrations and ceremonies? Are we doing an, an injustice to these uh, folks by elevating them to uh, such a high point? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a number of things we can say about that, Bill. I think, you know, I, Justin, I... Well, first of all, Parrish, I, I completely sympathize with your view and the idea that the truth of the, is the truth independent of the messenger. But then at what point do we begin to maybe that messenger is not one to which we can attend and in, in, in yes. which I then I sympathize with Terry view, wingman Terry's view. I I would personally have a difficult time um, studying under being discipled by um, learning from Rabbi Zacharias now knowing what I know about this. And, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong in that. I just know what my my immediate response is related to it. And, and I think it goes then to what Justin, you know, there's so many different parts or tentacles to this. When you have something as, as significantly pervasive as the ongoing moral failings of many of the most visible evangelical leaders, it, it does beg somebody to step back and ask a number of different kinds of questions. And I think one of the question that we need to step back and ask is exactly what you just said, Justin, and that to which you referred, Bill, and that is, is there some system in place that is to at least to some degree contributing to the failure that we find ourselves in? And, and clearly, um, the syn- we, we talk about syncretism. Tom uh, Brock brought up that word earlier, that there's a syncretism of sexuality in the city of Ephesus with life in the church in Ephesus. Well, one of the great syncretisms of our age that I don't think we often talk about very much is that in a free market capitalistic society of the United States of America, that that's a value, that's a principle of the United States. Well, that when you have syncretism, you take on the values of the culture around you and apply them to the church. And so as soon as we start uh, claiming such things like the church is a business, which it, which it decidedly is not, that always just makes me, you know, want to, um, I'm not sure, poke my eyeballs out, I suppose, <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I hear that phrase, because there there's nothing in Scripture that says the church is a business. And it certainly is not a free market capitalistic enterprise that is designed to judge its metrics of success based on the growth of the population within the body. But but when we start seeing those sorts of things, and, and I own a business myself, and I'm always surprised how often I end up and people are doing demographic analysis and church growth. And of course, the most successful businesses are the ones that are growing the most rapid. And then those leaders become the most visible. And then they start exerting the influence and all of what's going on. Well, I can have that conversation in the morning and go to a meeting in the afternoon in the church. And it's the exact same kind where the, where the metrics of success related 
to that church has to do with the growth of the ministry, the number of the people coming in, and what all gets compromised in the pursuit of that kind of success and growth, claiming that it's somehow God's blessing, because we believe that God's blessing has to do with some sort of material prosperity. The whole thing gets mixed up really quickly, I would say, and it, and it sets us up for a, a spirituality that I think it can almost become duplicitous and hollowed out and hypocritical really, really easily. At the very least, it's the soil in which those things can grow. Because if you start growing in your visibility and you start growing in numbers and in your supposed sense of influence, and you've got something else going behind the scenes in your life morally, boy, you, you can begin to justify and rationalize. And, I, and I'm not going to claim I'm in Ravi's mind. I'm, I clearly am not. But you do have to at least ask some questions about the kind of people involved in that visible leadership. And, and I guess the last piece of the puzzle, and then I'll shut up and, and turn it over to somebody else. As, as somebody who has had the opportunity to speak in front of, of thousands and thousands of people of the weekend, and, and as one who was identified at one point in his life as a very young man to be a large mecca church pastor and all of that, there is a level of intoxication that goes with that sense of fame and power that I at least rubbed up against. And it was not pretty, you guys. And, and, and I can see why it leads to the kind of seedbed of these failings. And I think if we just if we only say, well, it's another thing that's too bad, I, I think we might need to step back and say the entire system of understanding what church life is meant to be might need a little bit of a refresh at the very least and, and somewhat of an implosion and revolution at the most, because this continues to be the fruit that's born from it. Good word. Preach it. You know, I, a pastor that I respect said he wants to know where a pastor stays in a hotel who's really become successful. Meaning, is he staying in some $500 a night hotel? Uh, you know, is it, you know when, when these, some of these TV preachers are uh, on their own jet, driving Maseratis, etc. You know, I'm not saying it's a sin to drive a fancy car, but the witness stinks. You know, I, I, I have a lot of respect for a pastor who's maybe very famous, makes a lot of money, and drives a simple car and stays in a simple hotel and gives buckets to missions. Those are the people I respect. And and so uh, just I, I think once you get successful, uh, you know, Johnny Carson said, this is when $100 was a lot of money. But I watched that Johnny Carson show many years ago. He said, I still can't spend $100 for a pair of shoes. And I just think we need to live simply, and if you make it big, it's not a sin to have a nice car, of course, but if you're a preacher of the gospel, do you need a jet and a Maserati, and what are you saying to your people? Well, that got personal, because I do have a jet and a Maserati. <laughs> or not. <laughs> but that's okay. I, that's okay, Tom. If you don't want to be on the show anymore, I understand. <laughs> I love it. I have an electric bike. Does that count? I got a big battery. No, that's and nice. I, I love, love electric it. bikes. Those are cool. <laughs> All right, Peter, nice job on that. I appreciate your comments and Tom as well. Thank you for yeah. that. Yeah, that's good stuff. All right, here's another question that came in uh, about the passage out of James chapter 1 and consider it pure joy. And the, when you face trials of many kinds, the listener appears to be struggling a little bit with that given just the amount of trouble that they're suffering right now. What's a better way to understand that passage? Not all at once. <laughs> no, well, I, I think, uh, you know, looking a little bit at the context here of James, you know, writing to persecuted Christians that were 
um, dispersed. Um, I, I don't know. I think I, I often just keep going back to this where um, I think so often we can read Scripture um, maybe with an overly individualistic uh, interpretation and then application. Um, mm. and, uh, and I love that he says, count it all joy, my brothers or my brothers and sisters. Um, you know, I love that he doesn't say this to a, just an individual. Now, while individuals do indeed have um, trials and tribulations and hardships and pains and sufferings, um, he's writing this to a community of faith, and and I think we it, it means a lot of things and and a lot of other things, but at least it means that we're not meant to bear them alone. And so, um, and I think that while troubles don't go away um, just by you know uh, uh, just by applying truth necessarily, but our perspective of them does, and it helps us move closer into community to be able to bear one another's burdens. And part of the joy that comes um, from bear, from in the midst of trials um, is the realization that we're not alone in the midst of them. That of course Christ is always with us, but He's also with us as He's incarnated or represented through the lives of other brothers and sisters in the family. And I think that's, that makes a huge difference. I learned a powerful lesson about this when I was a kid. Everyone saw my—I I grew up in a lower-middle-class home. My dad was a carpenter, uh, didn't have a lot of money. But every once in a while, he'd bring home a box of candy for my mom, chocolate candies. The only problem was my mom didn't like chocolate. So it was between my dad and I to eat that up. <laughs> and I remember I got particular with which pieces I'd pull out and eat and which pieces I wouldn't eat because I didn't like the flavor. I think we do the same thing with the Word of God. We love the passages that talk about success. We love the passages that talk about being protected. We love the passages about being rescued. But we pretty much ignore the ones that talk about, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Or when trouble comes, rejoice anyway. Because most of us want a comfortable Christianity rather than the one Jesus really talked about, which is one that's been hard for most Christians around the world. So we need to kind of wake up to that in America and realize that if we're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be real trouble, and it's going to be painful. But ultimately, our goal is to honor him above our own pleasure or well-being. I think of the verse. Yeah, that's a good word. Go go ahead there, Peter. Yeah, no, just quickly. I think that's a good word, Parrish. And and Justin, i got to say, I'm, I'm... sort of having my head explode right now. I've never really thought about the passage in James as sort of a plural you or my brothers, or it's the community of faith. And and that, I think, is an incredibly helpful invitation that in the the pain that we experience in this world, and, and as the listener is describing, I mean, it's pretty clear James does say that these things can have the capacity to create wisdom and character in us to the extent that we let those things happen. But the idea of sharing that within the the plural you that is the church and and the trials of the church as opposed to the individualist ac- application it maybe gives me a sense maybe i can walk through these trials if i have brothers and sisters with me uh that are bearing the burdens i've never really thought about it in that way what what a profound invitation and i i, I would agree the the person who called is feeling the burden and not the joy right now make sure you're in a good christian church you got some good christian friends talk it out you know, if you're if you're just going through sorrows, having Christians to talk things out with is just so good. And but you know, I, I couldn't help but think of the verse. You know, the apostles get beat up for the gospel, and they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And I think that is the kind of thing James is talking about. Count on all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, 
Uh, it will help your character. <laughs> but also, it's you know, um, Tom Parrish and I would used to go to the difficult synod conventions when we were, were part of a very liberal church, and we'd always hold forth the scriptures, and we'd always get beat up, and then we'd go home. I, I hated going to those things. I hated being at them. But I kind of flew home knowing the Lord had used us. We didn't win, but the Lord used us. And yes. there's a joy that you get, even if you lose, knowing the Lord used you. So I think, you know, there is joy in these sorrows because God's using them for His glory, our good, etc. Mm-hmm. And of course, the rest of the verse in James talks about the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The only way I know how to mature in Jesus Christ is to go through trouble. You know, yeah. I, I do these great intellectual Bible studies that don't move me hardly one way or the other. It's when I have to apply that Bible study <laughs> to a broken relationship or something stupid that I've said or somebody I've hurt and i got to go and repent in front of them, which I've done, even mm-hmm. as a pastor. I know that we're supposed to do that. That is when I learn what these passages mean, and that is when I think we best represent the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding the the Ravi uh, issue that we were talking about, do you think the devil and his minions attack very public Christian figures to cause harm to the public's perception of our faith? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's an old saying, for every one time the devil walks around the parishioner's house, he walks around the pastor's house ten times. And I, I think there is some truth that if you're in Christian leadership, you've got a target on you. And that's why, that's why Christian leaders, more than anybody, need to have heavy-duty accountability in their lives. Well said, Tom Brock. All right, let me take a little break. We'll be right back with more Guide Talk. Let me know what the questions are. Got some great ones coming in. Thank you so much for sending questions. They are awesome. 877-933-2484. All right, I'm back with Guide Talk. Some great questions coming in. Here's one. Uh, you'll have to remember all the way back to last week, gentlemen. It's The question is, I have a, a question following up on a response from last week. Someone asked about how to respond to Bible skeptics who point out teachings that seem to not be relevant or accurate today. You advise that the answer was short and simple. We have to remember the audience and the times. Doesn't that help their argument that the Bible isn't relevant to our culture today? Please help. Start with you, Tom Parrish. Well, you know, there, there's always that trap. We think we've got a finite answer when it comes to Scripture, and then somebody can point this out. What it comes down to is this. Um, everything I believe, I've come to the conclusion in all my years, everything is relevant to the Bible. Sometimes it's more relevant than others as the Holy Spirit moves. So you need to go back and you need to look at it because I found that with everything the Bible talks about, there's a direct application to my life or to the life of people around me. And so, no, I don't agree with the skeptics. And my goal is always to challenge the skeptics to really look deeper and to look harder and uh, I offer to meet with them and sit and talk and see what we can figure out, and I've had some real success there. 
Yeah, I remember uh, we would wrestle through some of these questions in my hermeneutics class at seminary, just about the the applicability of the scriptural text, and to be able to distinguish that they were writing to certain people or for certain purposes or to certain situations in their time doesn't mean that the Bible isn't applicable for us. It might mean that the application that they're making in that specific context, like the idea of women cover your heads in ministry, well, there's something going on in that Corinthian church where Paul is uh, telling the church the women should cover their heads, and there's a range of reasons for it. Uh, Some of the women were wearing their hair as if they wanted to identify with the angelic community. There's some prostitution going on. There was all of that. And, and what we would talk about in seminary is Paul was making a specific application for the community based on a transcendent kingdom principle, meaning mm-hmm. that the kingdom has ways of life, and, and there are ways of being together in the kingdom. There are um, the realities that God has asked us into as we take his yoke upon us and, and, uh, and live within his teachings. And those things are universal. It doesn't matter if you're in first century. It doesn't matter if you're in 21st century. It doesn't matter if you're, you're within America or Asia or Europe or wherever. These things just transcend time and space. But the specific application then of those universal kingdom principles is where the place of discernment comes. So we can learn a ton from how Paul addressed the Galatian community, for example. Uh, and in that learning about how he addressed them, he's coming from a perspective about the kingdom that then becomes applicable today. So we're not worried about whether or not people should become circumcised if they want to come in the church as he was in the book of Galatians, but we can completely talk about the idea of what it means to live life by the Spirit now instead of living life by the law and the implications of an inside-out dwelling place where the Spirit dwells within and among us and the law has been written on our heart. But we could have thousands of conversations about that in 21st century America, even though the specific application of that time isn't necessarily what we're talking about. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really well said, Peter. And, and I think that, um, you know, I wasn't a part of last week's conversation, but just as I'm understanding the, the, the question here, I think in order to get to that personal application for our time, we have to travel through the pathway of what was the original intended meaning from the author to the original audience. And so often we read a passage of Scripture and we short-circuit that and we say, well, what does this mean for me? We can't accurately get there if we don't go through the the work of discerning what does this mean in that original context. And so there's maybe a certain precept there that was applicable to, you know, Paul writing to the Galatians, but we can get to the universal principle um, through and this is a, you know, um, for me, I remember taking a, a Bible study methods class as a freshman year in Bible college and going through what's called the inductive Bible study method of observation, interpretation, application. And um, uh, a book that we read on that was um, by Howard Hendricks. You know, I know he's an old old, old uh, pastor, theologian, but it was just so, so good. Um, but really traveling the pathway of those three steps help us get to what is the universal applicability um, to us in our context, that the Holy Spirit actually works um, and reveals to us, because here, the beautiful reality is, is we don't we don't just read the Bible for God; we get to read the Bible with God. So we actually get to have a conversation with the author. That the same Holy Spirit that inspired Paul to write what he wrote dwells within us, that so we can actually understand what he wrote and what he meant, and then how that applies to our lives. Indeed, you know there are always two kinds of skeptics: there are the honest skeptics and the dishonest ones. Some are honest with the scriptures, and they say, I don't understand, I can't see how this fits, can you help me do that? But then the dishonest skeptics are the ones who are always trying to find a problem to really take away the authority of the Bible and to take away any word that anyone has to say that they don't agree with. 
And I think Christians have not become good at being the kind of defenders of the faith where we can really lovingly look at somebody and ask the right kind of questions to force them to begin to be honest about their own personal motivation for saying that. Yeah, And somebody said to me recently, truth is like a lion. Just let it loose and it will take care of itself. And there, there is a place for defending the gospel, arguing the gospel, but overwhelmingly, we just preach the gospel. And there are people that are going to argue with it, and you got to sit down with them and, uh, and explain, you know, that, well, there's archaeology that backs this up, and or all the arguments and stuff. But, you know, I would say 95% of my preaching, I'm not trying to prove anything, I'm not trying to argue anything, I'm just presenting the truth, and that's what gets through to people. I mean, Paul said, we appeal to each man's conscience, not so much his intellect or his emotions, I'm going for the conscience. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you know you need a Savior? That's where people get saved, is when you appeal to their conscience and just preach the gospel, let it loose, and it'll take care of itself. All right, I'm back with other comments and questions regarding Robbie. This certainly opened up a a lot of discussion. This is an interesting point uh, this listener has made. She said, should he not have been better protected by his own organization? Why would leadership ever think it was okay for him to own massage parlors and to travel by himself with his personal massage therapist? I agree wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of that accountability is to, again, don't even give a hint that you're yeah. doing something that's inappropriate. Yeah. And that's why yeah, I, pastors are, li- are listening. It's important to have make sure your elders are not all yes men. <laughs> I mean, uh, we all like comfortable elders, but we need to make sure we have elders on our board and our churches who are willing to say the hard word to the pastor. And uh, sometimes you just have everybody's, you know, holding hands and not not willing to say the hard word. Yeah, it is it is a tricky thing. I mean, unfortunately, the the conversations that you would hear about going on behind the scenes with when when Bill Hybels was going through the, uh, not the same kind of moral f- failing, but but similar to. And, and you hear it like over and over again in these church environments. And unfortunately, I've been in these church environments as well, where I'm just going to go back. When we start judging our metrics of success upon the, the, these business enterprises that are taking in quite a bit of money and a lot of people's livelihoods are at stake, the very first conversation I have with my young students, if they're an intro to ministry classes, I ask them, how many of you would ever compromise your sense of leading or the gospel um, for any reason at all? And they all start out and say, well, of course not. We never would. And then we go ahead and begin the the next part of about an hour-long conversation, deconstructing the idea of the church as a business, because I will tell them, well, what happens if you've got 200 people in your church, and they're the ones that are supporting your ability to feed your children and, and to support the staff's ability to feed their children through this sort of mix-up of vocation and ministry? direction you're going in the church, and and you absolutely think and, and believe and have discerned with the elders or whatever that that's how God is leading you, but if these 50 people left, they're the primary givers for the church, and that means you can no longer feed your kids. Now please tell me if you're going to have any kind of temptation at all to compromise your sense of the gospel and stuff, and, and I think it's that among some other things, and it would be a bigger topic maybe for even a different time, that is playing into the dimensions of what's going on here, and so that's why I think this this is something that I, I think would need at some point the definition of insanity is keep doing the same things and expect a different outcome, right? Yep. And and we've continued to do the same things over and over and over again. And at what point do we look at the outcomes and say, 
hang on just a minute. Maybe we need to rethink this thing from top to bottom, both life as business and the church, even what it means to be a follower of Jesus, how to actually grow an authentic character, um, and, and all of what is going on there. I just there, There's a bigger invitation here. Nicely stated. Uh, right. I think we're just about out of time, and still there's lots more coming in. So I appreciate all the great questions that have come in today. I really have got some great questions. I'm going to maybe have to put these on hold till next next week. Sounds we good. don't have the British extended version today, <laughs> which would be perfect if we did because uh, there's still much more. And the subject about Robbie, I want to just, uh, one listener said, what happened to him? So, uh, Tom Parrish, do you want to say in 30 seconds, can you summarize what happened? To- Tragically, he was leading a double life. Mm-hmm. He's a very strong defender of the gospel, very great apologist. Had a big following. Uh, I was very impressed by him. But underneath the surface, even though he was married, he owned a couple of massage parlors and he was abusive toward women sexually. And there are many that have come out and spoken that, and the investigation has shown that. And this has been verified by his own ministry. They his hired, own ministry has verified these are all true. Legal team that yeah. did all the investigation. So it's it's what they produced for their organization for Robbie's organization. Okay, gentlemen, thank you. You guys are awesome as always, and I loved uh, hanging out with you guys. So thanks so much for joining the program today, and we'll look forward to next time. Thanks, right. Bill. Thank you so much, thanks, Bill. Bill. You too. Have a good evening, yeah, gentlemen. All right, we'll wrap up uh, Guy Talk. Thank you so much for the great questions. We'll take a short break, and then we'll be back with Hour 2. Dr. Bruce Ashford is going to be joining me at the top of the hour. Bruce has been a regular on the show Uh, but not in the afternoon. So we're looking forward to catching up with him. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.